What's your name? Lincoln. Say Lincoln. Lincoln? Lincoln. You stay with me. I got you. <laughs> Who's this? Rexy. Right, Lincoln? You good friends with Rexy? You shake hands? Alright. Rexy's a lot of fun. He plays real rough. And when we go out and play with Rexy, we just have a good time. It's just rough and tumble and we wrestle around and whatever kind of games we play. He's not very good at softball, though. <laughs> but we'll go out with Rexy and, well, you know, Rexy's family's not in the church. And so... Sometimes we have to kind of straighten some things out with Rexy and tell him, you know, well, that's not just the way we, we do things, Rexy. And we go out and play with Rexy, and, and our parents like for us to play with Rexy because, well, we just want his family to get to know Jesus. And, and wow, what a good way for them to get to know Jesus through, through all of you, right? Through all the children. And so we go out and play with Rexy, but Rexy always gets us in trouble. You know, we'll come back from playing and and all, all our parents will be there and wait for everybody to come back. And, and they'll say, I'll say, oh, that's so great y'all came back. I said, well, wait a minute. Where, where's Lincoln? What, what happened to Lincoln? And we'll all say, well, I don't know where Lincoln is. And, oh, I don't know where Lincoln is. No, I don't know where Lincoln is. And Rexy will say, I said, Rexy! And the, and the children are like, you can't be doing that. But Rexy, you can't be eating Lincoln. That's just, that's just not good. Oh, but, but Rexy's parents will say, oh, that's just the way Rexy is. He's just showing Lincoln how much he loves him. <laughs> but we all get yelled at. Why did you let him eat Lincoln? That's just not a good thing. You all got to be watching him, and you got to be taking, you know, taking care of him and taking care of your friend Lincoln. Well, so time goes by, and it just seems like Rexy just never gets it, and whenever we're not looking, he eats Lincoln. <laughs> and we all get yelled at. Well, what would you do if you had a friend like that? And he kept getting you in all kinds of trouble. What would you do? What would you do? Pray for him. That's a wonderful answer. Yes, we would definitely be praying for Rexy and Lincoln. <laughs> Starting to look a little chewed up here, but <laughs> what? What else? But what if? What if it just we just pray for him and pray for him and pray for him, and you know Lincoln's starting to lose a few parts here. It's getting a little rough. <laughs> what would you do then? Well, you know, as long as as we still have all of Lincoln. And as long as Rexy's not changing our mind, then we're going to keep working with Rexy and we're going to keep playing with him. We're going to keep praying for him. But if we start to think, you know, Lincoln, you're looking pretty delicious there, buddy. And maybe we think it might be okay if we had a bite or two of Lincoln too. <laughs> Well, then we've got to do something different. At, at that point, we might just have to just stop playing with Rex. Because, you know, as sad as that would be, we have to stay on doing what's right. And if Rexy starts leading us off to do the wrong things and we're not leading him to do the right things, then sometimes we have to walk away. And it's really really hard. So we need to pray harder for Rexy and Lincoln. Right? Alright, y'all can go back to your parents. Here, Rexy, you sit over here. Well, good morning. It is my great pleasure and privilege to be with you all this morning to greet you in the name of Jesus. 
We're very happy to be here. My daughter's very happy to be back. She's been missing you all. Um, I'm very glad for all of you that came up for the men's meetings. That was really a wonderful, wonderful time. That was, uh, I, I told Joshua, I just love to sit under preaching that reminds me that I'm really not a very good preacher. There was, there was some excellent preaching there, there yesterday. And we, had, uh, and we went in in the morning and we came out in the afternoon. And I turned to my brother, Minister Jonathan, and he'd gotten up and he said, oh, good morning, Jeff. I was like, it's not morning anymore. I said, well, that's right, but we've been in here all day. <laughs> it was, but it was a beautiful thing. It was uh, just a wonderful time together. And I hope, um, I don't know, maybe we need to do one down here. And everybody can travel down here for the change. Huh? You turn me to Deuteronomy 4. And we're going to start at verse 1. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive every one of you to this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Excuse me. I have a lot of sermons stuffed in the back of my Bible today. I guess I could have given you all a choice. I'd preached about um, idolatry, and then I preached about false doctrine. Uh, this message is about culture. It's a question we often hear. We hear it from people from other churches, and increasingly we hear it from within our own church. What is the importance of church culture, of the church having a culture? Why, why does our church need rules? Why do we spend so much time talking about culture? What does it matter? Is it important what we wear or what we do or how we go and do things? Uh, we had a discussion about weddings in the ministry and um, one of the bishops told us, well, you know, it's really important to make sure that the bride's not wearing white shoes. And I, I confess, I grew up in a different culture and I wasn't aware that the bride ever wore anything but white shoes. <laughs> so, but we do, we do spend a lot of time talking about culture. We have a unique and distinctive culture as a church and as a people. But shouldn't we be spending more time on, on spiritual things, we say, and, and things of the heart? Why are we wasting time on appearances and outward things when it's the things of the heart that really matter. All that's supposed to come from the heart, right? Well, so culture really, it is a spiritual thing, isn't it? I mean, is that true? Is culture not important to the church? Can we just exist and remain intact within whatever culture we find ourselves in? If, if I'm shipped off to India to be a minister, will it matter? Can I just be fine in that culture? If I go to Haiti or to Jamaica, will it not matter to my faith? Will it not affect me? Or is it important 
that we do have our own distinctive culture? Do we have an answer? First Peter 3, 14 through 16 says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, and neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So this morning, let's take a look at having a ready answer for culture, for our culture. So why does the church have a culture? What, what is culture, anyway? Before we go on, we have to know what that is, don't we? Well, culture is the customs and the beliefs, the art, the way of life, the social organization of a particular country or region or group of people. So that's us, right? We're a group of people, or even a country. We're God's kingdom. We see culture referred to in the Hebrew word that the King James translates as ways. Derek is the Hebrew word. A way or a course of life, a journey. It's derived from the word darak, which means to walk. And that's where we get the idea of our Christian walk. It also means to guide or to lead. So culture is really, it's the whole way of life of a people. Their traditions, their worship, their entertainments, the way they relate to one another, the way they relate to their young people, to their old people. It's every aspect of their way, of their, their walk. It provides motivation and guidance for the things that people do. Everyone lives in a culture. So we have a culture. The world around us has a very powerful culture. I was reading a book by a woman who had been um, homosexual, and she had left that life and was now a pastor's wife in a conservative, not, a, not an Anabaptist church, but a fairly conservative mainstream church. But she talked about the culture of the life that she had came from. And there were parts of that culture that she felt were very beautiful. And she wanted to keep those parts of that culture as a part of her life. When people come from India or from overseas, they bring parts of their culture with them. They want to fit in with the culture here, but they want to keep the parts of the culture that made them comfortable and feel at home and part of the family in their old culture. So everyone has culture. And if you want to win someone over, you have to be able to invite them into your culture. What does God say about culture? Did, did God find culture important? If you want to, you can flip over to Leviticus, chapter 18. That's that part of your Bible that it never naturally falls open to. I started verse 1 again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, with which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. I am the Lord. I read from the New American Standard. That's probably a little different than what you were following along in. So on being freed from Egypt, God warned the people not to bring with them the culture of Egypt. And he further warned them not to adopt the culture of the land they were going to. God's statutes and judgments, the law, laid out a new culture for them. And if they would adopt God's culture, then they would live. So culture isn't an add-on. It's not something that we just put on top of our lives. Culture is it's foundational. 
the laws in chapter 18 spell out how people would deal with their most intimate relationships. And that becomes the heart of the family and then the heart of the nation. Why do you suppose it is, as you read all through the scripture, that the Hebrews keep turning back to idols? They hadn't eradicated the culture that worshipped those idols. That culture was still all around them. They were still living in the middle of it. They continued to mingle with it. So the history of all the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel is a history of failure. 1 Kings 22:42 says, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shelah. And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered sacrifice and burned incense on the high places. 1 Kings 22.51 says, Ahaziah the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother and the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat who made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God to Israel, of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. And 2 Kings 3, 1 and 2 says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. So some improvement there. 2 Kings 14, 4 says, And he, Amaziah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. 2 Kings 21, verse 1 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. He made a wooden image, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And 2 Kings 24.9 says, And he, Jehoiakim, did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And on, and on, and on. All of these kings either carried forward the evil cultures of their fathers, the foreign cultures of their mothers, or they were unable to fully remove the idolatrous culture that had infected the people. Even under the good kings, the high places are not removed and idols continue to be set up. Did the people thrive in spite of that? Did they grow closer to the Lord in spite of the fact that their leadership was going farther away? In spite of the fact that they were surrounded by and dwelling in an evil culture? No. They did not. Their culture did not survive. In fact, God exiled them into the surrounding countries and made them to thrive there where they had failed in their own. But what about us? Does all that apply to us? How, how does this even relate to, I don't know, church rules about dress and appearance? Does that make any sense at all? Well, Joshua 7, 20-21 says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them, and I took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. Aren't gold and silver neutral things? I mean, does it matter who, who had them last? Do you, do you, I have a, probably have a dollar in my pocket. Well, I don't. 
But I really don't worry about who had it before me. I'll just go ahead and spend it, and I still get a soda, or maybe, or whatever, and I, and I think that's fine, right? Why, why is that so important? Who had it last? And now what does this garment matter? Does it really matter what we wear? Well, the law spoke to every point of contact between the Israelites' culture and the cultures around them, from the things that they ate to the things that they wore. Achan saw the Babylonish garment, and he wanted it. That revealed in him a desire to be a part of that culture, to participate in that culture. And that was the same culture that God had commanded them to completely and utterly destroy. Achan's sin cost 38 lives at the Battle of Ai. And then it cost his own life and the life of his family. Does a garment matter? Romans 12, 1 through 3 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Sacrifices, the gold and silver were a problem, not because they had belonged to the people of Jericho, but because after the battle, they belonged to God. They were to be left for the Lord. But again, how how does that apply to us? After all, the culture that we live in, the culture outside the door there, well, that's our culture, right? We've grown up in it. We're citizens of this country, aren't we? We were mostly born and raised here, maybe all of us. Can we claim to have a culture apart from it? People tell us, well, really, what we need to learn is how we can stay the course within that culture. How we can live as an American and a Christian too. Well, can we do that? Can Christian men and women stand while living as part of a non-Christian and even an anti-Christian culture? Can we do that? Let's turn back again. Let's go back to Genesis. We'll go start in Genesis 18. And let's skip down to verse 20. Let's find out what God has to say about that. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave... I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous and the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And skip down a little bit to verse 32. And Abraham says, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten, ten righteous, should be found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, we could have skipped right into chapter 19, but 
we need to stop and notice this. We don't know what Abraham thought or knew about Sodom. He may not have even known that his nephew was still living there. But still, after his bold negotiations with the Lord, Abraham must have been satisfied that the city would be spared. Lot's family alone probably amounted to ten people. So surely he had negotiated life for Sodom. Reading on in Genesis 19, starting in chapter 1, or verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. And he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And so Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And then they said, This one came to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. And now we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So let's stop here and notice a few things. First, Lot was sitting in the city gate. He was sitting where the elders of the city would meet to do the town's business and to pass judgment. The the work of the government was done here. How, How many times have you heard Christians say, well, you know, you need to vote. All Christians need to go out and vote so that we can have good moral leaders there in the government. Well, here you go. Lot was that good politician that they're all looking for, right? He was a righteous man, and he was in there tempering that wicked government. Second, the angels, the angels determined they were going to pass the night in the city square. They were there to see what was going on in the city. So what better way than to stay out in the city square all night? But Lot insisted that they lodge with him. Now, was this because he was a righteous and hospitable man? Or is this because he knew the character of his neighbors? Well, verse 8 says, This is the reason they are come under my roof. That reveals Lot brought them into his house to protect them. Now, we can say that's an and. Obviously, Lot was a righteous and hospitable man, and he wanted to do the right thing by them. But he had the goal of protecting them from his neighbors, who he knew. Who came? Who came after the men? Was it just the the thugs, the drug dealers, the, the awful people of the town? It was the men, both old and young, All the people from every quarter. All. The entire city. Note also now, a few hours ago, Lot was a respected elder sitting in the city gate. But by verse 9, he becomes a foreigner and a wicked judge, and the mob turns on him. This is a picture of of how quickly the world turns on Christians who befriend it. 
And finally, has Lot been living unaffected as a righteous man in the midst of this wickedness? Is he able to stand? You know, many commentaries I read, they just bend over backwards to excuse Lot here. After all, in Hebrews, he's named as one of the righteous. But honestly, no culture, no tradition, no fear, no amount of desperation can excuse Lot offering up his daughters to the hands of this mob. We cannot say that Lot is living righteously and unaffected in Sodom. Let's go on to verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Where were the sons-in-law last night? It's kind of a terrible question. But they're married to Lot's daughters. So presumably, they were at least thought at one point to have been righteous men. But the idea of God destroying the city because of its wickedness is a joke to them, just as it would be today. If you told the people you work with, God's going to destroy South Boston today because of its wickedness, they would laugh. You wouldn't even be able to bring yourself to say it. Right? South Boston's not that bad. Is it? Better than Harrisonburg. Why would anyone think that God would rain down judgment on a city for the things that they see each and every day? On verse 15. When the morning dawned, The angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. When I give my testimony, this is one of my saving verses. I lived in the world. I wasn't raised Anabaptist. I wasn't raised churched. And this is what God did for me. All right? We can look hard at Lot, but we're always looking back. This culture is what we're used to. This culture is what we've lived in. This culture, it just can't be that God's going to do that. But the angels took him by the hand and dragged him out of town. Him and his family with him. That's God's great and wonderful mercy. That's the throne you can boldly approach. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. But then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me, by saving my life. But, but I, I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me, and I die. See now, this city is, is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it, is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything 
until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Having been rescued, dragged out of the city, Lot still doesn't trust that God will keep him safe in the mountains. He's a city boy. And that's the only place he thinks he can be safe. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. And then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah was a culture of the flesh. Sodom, in fact, means burning. So first it burned with sin, and then it burned with fire. Gomorrah means submersion. So Gomorrah was immersed in all the sins of the world. Now, a lot of scholars try to write today, well, we have a modern view of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and their sin really it wasn't what we, we think it is. But Josephus wrote in the first century, about this time the Sodomites grew proud on account of their riches and great wealth. They became unjust toward men and impious toward God, insomuch that they did not call to mind the advantages they received from him. They hated strangers and abused themselves with sodomitical practices. And he goes on, and we won't read that here. Is it too harsh, then, to compare Western American culture to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Is it too harsh to say we need a distinct culture because the culture we live in is that bad? Isaiah 3, 9 says, The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. And neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Well, June was Pride Month in the United States. You probably couldn't avoid hearing about it, really. And it wasn't Pride Month because activists said so or because a certain community said so. It was Pride Month because the government said so. There were gay pride events held at the White House. There were parades, not permitted, but sponsored in every major city. And pride flags were flying at the White House and at this nation's embassies all around the world. Jude 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now across the country, and in Virginia, parents groups are trying to get school boards to remove books from elementary school libraries that celebrate immoral relationships, physical relationships, with great detail and even illustrations. Notice I said remove. Those books are already in public school libraries for children nine years old and younger to see. Jeremiah 23, 14 says, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none doth return from his wickedness. 
They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. There's simply no denying that this describes the culture around us. These are the doings of this culture's leadership, its educational system, its entertainment, its celebrities, its athletes. This is the same culture that we hesitate to separate ourselves from so that we'll be able to participate in its sports events and benefit from its politics and enjoy its entertainments, and like Aiken, wear its clothes. So how do we change that? Instead of a culture of the flesh, we are called to be freed to have a culture of the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation in them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We are enabled to live spiritual lives, to not seek after and desire only things of the flesh. We have a choice. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. If we feed the flesh, the flesh will grow. But if we feed the Spirit, then the Spirit will grow. And to feed the Spirit, we need to remember in 1 John 2.15, to love not the world neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So how do we look forward? How do we move away from this culture and into the culture of the Spirit? You can turn, if you like, to Hosea 7. I'm starting at verse 8. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. And we'll skip down to verse 16. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Ephraim means twice blessed. Because Joseph's son Ephraim received a double blessing. But here Hosea is referring to the northern kingdom. Israel is referred to as Ephraim because Jeroboam, its first king, was from the tribe of Ephraim. So how is it that his kingdom turned from the Lord in this terrible way? They mingled with the surrounding culture. Instead of dominating it, they took it in. And so they became a cake not turned. The mixture of idolatry and worship of the Lord resulted in a dough that was good for nothing. It was burned on the bottom and raw on the top because the cake had never been turned and properly mixed. We simply cannot exist in a culture of sin with no opposing culture of our own and not be absorbed by it. But 
How does this fit in with evangelism? Should we just close our doors? Should we just spread the gospel by having children? That's going pretty well. But we're called to more than that. What about little Rexy? How are him and his family ever going to be saved if we just close up and won't mingle in any way with his culture? How do we reach out to the world and not lose our own culture? Our culture has to be strong. We have to have a strong culture of our own. If you ever get tired of hearing the bishops come and preach about wearing a white shirt or buttoning your shirt collar or whatever, well, that's why. Because we slip. We like the things that are going on in the world. We like pink shirts. And we like undone shirt buttons a lot, right? (laughs) But we have to pay attention to those things to keep our culture strong. We have to show that there's a difference and that the things that we do have beauty. They make us at home. They show us we're part of a family. They bring us together. Our culture must be distinctive. It must be built on the foundation of following God's ways and not the world's. The more unlike the world's culture our culture is, the more seeking people will be drawn to it. People like to say, well, you have to be like the world to win the world. But that is not true. The people in the world already have the world. That's why they're looking for something different. And if we present to them the same world they're living in, only only we're good people, that doesn't cut it. That's not enough to draw them in. The more the world's culture is unlike our culture, the more they'll be drawn to it. And the more we will be insulated from the things that are done in the world. That's what Leviticus 18 tells us. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Be as the Lord tells you. Finally, we have to love our culture. We have to desire to maintain it. The Israelites were not a closed people. They had proselytes. Those were Gentiles who joined their tribes, and they were grafted in. These people adopted the Lord's law and the Hebrew culture. They're not the people Hosea is talking about. Hosea is talking about Ephraim taking in people and adopting their cultures rather than teaching them the Lord's culture and adopting their gods rather than teaching them to walk with the Lord. Turn over to Luke 17. Go down to verse 32. And Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. We quote that second verse, we hear it a lot. But have you ever noticed before the verse that precedes it? Remember Lot's wife. Being saved, can a person lose their salvation? That's almost an academic question in church circles, isn't it? We have Calvinism, we have Arminianism, and how, how can that be? How can it be that seeing what's ahead, that seeing all that we've been rescued from, and the glory that God's provided for us, that we keep looking back and longing for the world that was so determined to destroy us. Lot's wife was saved. 
They had crossed the plain and reached the little city. But she longed for her old life. And in looking back, in wanting to save her old life, she was lost. Back in Genesis 19, verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like a smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Why is the church so important? Why is it so important that we come here together, that we fellowship together, that we read the scripture together, and that we agree together? Ten righteous people. There were not ten righteous people in two cities of thousands that had not succumbed to the wicked culture there. There are ten righteous here today. Does your presence hold back the fire from South Boston? From Richmond? From Washington? Does God's promise to Abraham still hold today? Do the churches of the nations spare them with their prayers, with their presence? Abraham had a heart for those people carried away in those wicked cultures. And he prayed to God that perhaps some might be spared. If you want an example of going boldly before the Lord, that's it. We need to be praying in that same way for the people lost in the culture around us and reaching out to them like the angels behind the door to pull them into safety. And when they're in, we need to be able to offer them a different culture to come home to, a walk in God's way, not an unturned cake, but Christ's precious church. Shall we have a song?